Chapter Four, Part One of South. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. South, the story of Shackleton's last expedition, nineteen fourteen to nineteen seventeen, by Sir Ernest Shackleton. Chapter Four, Part One. LOSS OF THE ENDURANCE The ice did not trouble us again seriously until the end of September, though during the whole month the flow was seldom entirely without movement. The roar of pressure would come to us across the otherwise silent ice-fields, and bring with it a threat and a warning. Watching from the crow's nest, we could see sometimes the formation of pressure ridges. The sunshine glittered on newly riven ice-surfaces, as the masses of shattered flow rose and fell away from the line of pressure. The area of disturbance would advance towards us, recede, and advance again. The routine of work and play on the endurance proceeded steadily. Our plans and preparations for any contingency that might arise during the approaching summer had been made, but there seemed always plenty to do in and about our prison ship. Runs with the dogs, and vigorous games of hockey and football on the rough snow-covered floe, kept all hands in good fettle. The record of one or two of these September days will indicate the nature of our life and our surroundings. September 4th. Temperature, minus 14.1 degrees Fahrenheit. Light easterly breeze, blue sky and stratus clouds. During forenoon, notice a distinct terracotta or biscuit colour in the stratus clouds to the north. This travelled from east to west, and could conceivably have come from some of the Graham Land volcanoes, now about three hundred miles distant to the northwest. The upper current of air probably would come from that direction. Heavy rhyme, pack unbroken and unchanged as far as visible, no land for twenty-two miles. No animal life observed. September 7th. Temperature. Minus 10.8 degrees Fahrenheit. Moderate easterly to southerly winds. Overcast and misty, with light snow till midnight, when weather cleared. Blue sky and fine clear weather to noon. Much rim aloft. Thick fresh snow on ship and floe that glistens brilliantly in the morning sunlight. Little clouds of faint violet-coloured mist rise from the lower and brinier portions of the pack, which stretches unbroken to the horizon. Very great refraction all around. A tabular berg, about fifty feet high, ten miles west, is a good index of the amount of refraction. On ordinary days it shows from the masthead, clear-cut against the sky, with much refraction. The pack beyond, at the back of it, lifts up into view. Today a broad expanse of miles of pack is seen above it. Numerous other bergs generally seen in silhouette are, at first sight, lost, but after a closer scrutiny they appear as large lumps or dark masses, well below the horizon. Refraction generally results in too big an altitude when observing the sun for position. But today the horizon is thrown up so much that the altitude is about twelve minutes too small. No land visible for twenty miles. No animal life observed. 
lower clerk's tow-net, with five hundred and sixty-six fathoms of wire, and hoisted up at two and a half miles an hour, by walking along the floe with the wire. Result rather meagre. Jellyfish and some fish larva. Exercise dogs and sledge teams. The young dogs, under Crean's care, pull as well, though not as strongly, as the best team in the pack. Hercules, for the last fortnight or more, has constituted himself leader of the orchestra. Two or three times, in the twenty-four hours, he starts a howl, a deep, melodious howl, and in about thirty seconds he has the whole pack in full song, the great deep, booming, harmonious song of the half-wolf pack. By the middle of September we were running short on fresh meat for the dogs. The seals and penguins seemed to have abandoned our neighbourhood altogether. Nearly five months had passed since we killed a seal, and penguins had been seen seldom. Clark, who was using his trowel as often as possible, reported that there was a marked absence of plankton in the sea, and we assumed that the seals and the penguins had gone in search of their accustomed food. The men got an emperor on the 23rd. The dogs, which were having their sledging exercise, became wildly excited when the penguin, which had risen in a crack, was driven ashore, and the best efforts of the drivers failed to save it alive. On the following day, Wilde, Hurley, Macklin, and McIlroy took their teams to the stained berg, about seven miles west of the ship, and on their way back got a female crab-eater, which they killed, skinned, and left to be picked up later. They ascended to the top of the berg, which lay in about latitude, sixty-nine degrees, thirty minutes south, longitude, fifty-one degrees west, and from an elevation of a hundred and ten feet, could see no land. Samples of the discoloured ice from the berg proved to contain dust with black gritty particles or sand grains. Another seal, a bull weddell, was secured on the twenty-sixth. The return of seal life was opportune, since we had nearly finished the winter supply of dog-biscuit, and wished to be able to feed the dogs on meat. The seals meant a supply of blubber, moreover, to supplement our small remaining stock of coal, when the time came to get up steam again. We initiated daylight saving system, on this day by putting forward the clock one hour. This is really pandering to the base, but universal passion that men, and especially seafarers, have for getting up late. Otherwise we would be honest and make our routine earlier instead of flogging the clock. During the concluding days of September, the roar of the pressure grew louder, and I could see that the area of disturbance was rapidly approaching the ship. Stupendous forces were at work, and the fields of firm ice around the Endurance were being diminished steadily. September 30th was a bad day. It began well, for we got two penguins and five seals during the morning. Three other seals were seen. But at 3 p.m., cracks that had opened during the night alongside the ship commenced to work in a lateral direction. The ship sustained terrific pressure on the port side forward, the heaviest shocks being under the fore-rigging. It was the worst squeeze we had experienced. The decks shuddered and jumped, beams arched, and stanchions buckled and shook. 
I ordered all hands to stand by in readiness for whatever emergency might arise. Even the dogs seemed to feel the tense anxiety of the moment. But the ship resisted valiantly, and just when it appeared that the limit of her strength was reached, the huge floe that was pressing down upon us cracked across and so gave relief. "'The behaviour of our ship in the ice has been magnificent,' wrote Worsley. "'Since we have been beset, her staunchness and endurance have been almost past belief again and again. "'She has been nipped with a million-ton pressure and risen nobly, "'falling clear of the water out on the ice. "'She has been thrown to and fro, like a shuttlecock a dozen times. "'She has been strained, her beams arched upwards, by the fearful pressure.' Her very sides opened and closed again as she was actually bent and curved along her length, groaning like a living thing. It will be sad if such a brave little craft should be finally crushed in the remorseless, slowly strangling grip of the Weddell pack, after ten months of the bravest and most gallant fight ever put up by a ship. The endurance deserved all that could be said in praise of her. Shipwrights had never done sounder or better work. But how long could she continue to fight under such conditions? We were drifting into the congested area of the western Weddell Sea, the worst portion of the worst sea in the world, where the pack, forced on irresistibly by wind and current, impinges on the western shore, and is driven up in huge corrugated ridges and chaotic fields of pressure. The vital question for us was whether or not the ice would open sufficiently to release us, or at least give us a chance of release, before the drift carried us into the most dangerous area. There was no answer to be got from the silent bergs and the grinding flows, and we faced the month of October with anxious hearts. The leads in the pack appear to have opened up a little on October 1st, but not sufficiently to be workable even if we had been able to release the endurance from the flow. The day was calm, cloudy and misty in the forenoon, and clearer in the afternoon, when we observed well-defined parhelia. The ship was subjected to slight pressure at intervals. Two bull crab-eaters climbed onto the flow close to the ship, and were shot by wild. They were both big animals in prime condition and I felt that there was no more need for anxiety as to the supply of fresh meat for the dogs. Seal liver made a welcome change in our own menu. The two bulls were marked, like many of their kind, with long parallel scars about three inches apart, evidently the work of the killers. A bull we killed on the following day had four parallel scars, sixteen inches long, on each side of its body, they were fairly deep, and one flipper had been nearly torn away. The creature must have escaped from the jaws of a killer by a very small margin. Evidently life beneath the pack is not always monotonous. We noticed that several of the bergs in the neighbourhood of the ship were changing their relative positions more than they had done for months past. The flows were moving. Opposition on Sunday, October 3rd was latitude 69 degrees, 14 minutes south, longitude 51 degrees, 8 minutes west. During the night the flow holding the ship aft cracked in several places, and this appeared to have eased the strain on the rudder. 
The forenoon was misty with falls of snow, but the weather cleared later in the day, and we could see that the pack was breaking. New leads had appeared, while several old leads had closed. Pressure ridges had risen along some of the cracks. The thickness of the season's ice, now about 230 days old, was 4 foot 5 inches, under 7 or 8 inches of snow. The ice had been slightly thicker in the early part of September, and I assumed that some melting had begun below. Clark had recorded plus temperatures at depths of 150 and 200 fathoms in the concluding days of September. The ice obviously had attained its maximum thickness by direct freezing, and the heavier older flows had been created by the consolidation of pressure ice and the overlapping of flows under strain. The air temperatures were still low, minus 24.5 degrees Fahrenheit, being recorded on October 4th. The movement of the ice was increasing. Frost smoke from opening cracks was showing in all directions during October 6th. It had the appearance in one place of a great prairie fire, rising from the surface and getting higher as it drifted off before the wind in heavy, dark, rolling masses. At another point, there was the appearance of a train running before the wind, the smoke rising from the locomotive straight upwards, and the smoke columns elsewhere gave the effects of warships steaming in line ahead. During the following day, the leads and cracks opened to such an extent that if the endurance could have been forced forward for thirty yards, we could have proceeded for two or three miles but the effort did not promise any really useful result. The conditions did not change materially during the rest of that week. The position on Sunday, October 10th, was latitude 69 degrees, 21 minutes south, longitude 50 degrees, 34 minutes west. A thaw made things uncomfortable for us that day. The temperature had risen from minus 10 degrees Fahrenheit, to plus 29.8 degrees Fahrenheit, the highest we had experienced since January, and the ship got dripping wet between decks. The upper deck was clear of ice and snow, and their cabins became unpleasantly messy. The dogs, who hated wet, had a most unhappy air. Undoubtedly one grows to like familiar conditions. We had lived long in temperatures that would have seemed distressingly low in civilized life, and now we were made uncomfortable by a degree of warmth that would have left the unaccustomed human being still shivering. The thaw was an indication that winter was over, and we began preparations for reoccupying the cabins on the main deck. I had the shelter-house round the stern, pulled down on the 11th, and made other preparations for work in the ship as soon as she got clear. The carpenter had built a wheel-house over the wheel-aft, a shelter in cold and heavy weather. The ice was still loosening, and no land was visible for twenty miles. The temperature remained relatively high for several days. All hands moved to their summer quarters in the upper cabins on the twelfth, to the accompaniment of much noise and laughter. Spring was in the air, and if there were no green growing things to gladden our eyes, there were at least many seals, penguins, and even whales disporting themselves in the leads. The time for renewed action was coming, 
and though our situation was grave enough, we were facing the future hopefully. The dogs were kept in a state of uproar by the sight of so much game. They became almost frenzied when a solemn-looking emperor penguin inspected them gravely from some point of vantage on the floe, and gave utterance to an apparently derisive NONK! At 7 p.m. on the 13th, the ship broke free of the floe, on which she had rested to starboard sufficiently to come upright. The rudder freed itself, but the propeller was found to be a thwart ship, having been forced into that position by the floe some time after August 1st. The water was very clear, and we could see the rudder, which appeared to have suffered only a slight twist to port at the water-line. It moved quite freely. The propeller, as far as we could see, was intact, but it could not be moved by the hand-gear, probably owing to a film of ice in the stern-gland and sleeve. I did not think it advisable to attempt to deal with it at this stage. The ship had not been pumped for eight months, but there was no water, and not much ice in the bilges. Meals were served again in the wardroom that day. The southwesterly breeze freshened to a gale on the 14th, and the temperature fell from plus 31 degrees Fahrenheit to minus 1 degree Fahrenheit. At midnight the ship came free from the floe, and drifted rapidly astern. Her head fell off before the wind until she lay nearly at right angles across the narrow lead. This was a dangerous position for rudder and propeller. The spanker was set, but the weight of the wind on the ship gradually forced the floes open, until the endurance swung right round and drove a hundred yards along the lead. Then the ice closed, and at three a.m. we were fast again. The wind died down during the day, and the pack opened for five or six miles to the north. It was still loose on the following morning, and I had the boiler pumped with the intention of attempting to clear the propeller. But one of the manholes developed a leak, the packing being perished by cold or loosened by contraction, and the boiler had to be emptied out again. The pack was rather closer on Sunday the 17th. Topsails and headsails were set in the afternoon, and with a moderate northeasterly breeze, we tried to force the ship ahead, out of the lead. But she was held fast. Later that day heavy pressure developed. The two floes between which the endurance was lying began to close, and the ship was subjected to a series of tremendously heavy strains. In the engine-room, the weakest point, loud groans, crashes, and hammering sounds were heard. The iron plates on the floor buckled up and overrode with loud clangs. Meanwhile the floes were grinding off each other's projecting points and throwing up pressure ridges. The ship stood the strain well for nearly an hour, and then, to my great relief, began to rise with heavy jerks and jars. She lifted ten inches forward, and then three foot four inches aft, at the same time heeling six degrees to port. The ice was getting below us, and the immediate danger had passed. The position was latitude sixty-nine degrees, nineteen minutes south, longitude fifty degrees, forty minutes west. The next attack of the ice came on the afternoon of October 18th. The two floes began to move laterally, exerting great pressure on the ship. 
Suddenly the floe on the port side cracked, and huge pieces of ice shot up from under the port bilge. Within a few seconds the ship heeled over, until she had a list of thirty degrees to port, being held under the starboard bilge by the opposing floe. The lee boats were now almost resting on the floe. The midship dog kennels broke away and crashed down onto the lee kennels, and the howls and barks of the frightened dogs assisted to create a perfect pandemonium. Everything movable on deck and below fell to the lee side, and for a few minutes it looked as if the endurance would be thrown upon her beam ends. Order was soon restored. I had all fires put out, and battens nailed on the deck to give the dogs a foothold and enable people to get about. Then the crew lashed all the movable gear. If the ship had heeled any farther, it would have been necessary to release the lee boats and pull them clear, and Worsley was watching to give the alarm. Hurley, meanwhile, descended to the floe, and took some photographs of the ship in her unusual position. Dinner in the wardroom that evening was a curious affair. Most of the diners had to sit on the deck, their feet against battens and their plates on their knees. At 8 p.m. the floes opened, and within a few minutes the endurance was nearly upright again. Orders were given for the ice to be chipped clear of the rudder. The men pulled the blocks out of the way, when they had been detached from the floe with the long ice chisels, and were able to haul the ship's stern into a clear berth. Then the boiler was pumped up. This work was completed early in the morning of October 19th, and during that day the engineer lit fires and got up steam very slowly, in order to economise fuel and avoid any strain on the chilled boilers by unequal heating. The crew cut up all loose lumber, boxes, etc., and put them in the bunkers for fuel. The day was overcast, with occasional snowfalls. The temperature plus 12 degrees Fahrenheit. The ice in our neighbourhood was quiet, but in the distance pressure was at work. The wind freshened in the evening, and we ran a wire mooring astern. The barometer at 11pm stood at 28.96, the lowest since the gales of July. An uproar among the dogs attracted attention late in the afternoon, and we found a 25-foot well cruising up and down in our pool. It pushed its head up once in characteristic killer fashion, but we judged from its small curved dorsal fin that it was a specimen of Balaenoptera acrotora strata, not Orca gladiator. A strong southwesterly wind was blowing on October 20th, and the pack was working. The endurance was imprisoned securely in the pool, but our chance might come at any time. Watches were set so as to be ready for working ship. Wild and Hudson, Green Street and Cheatham, Worsley and Crean, took the deck watches, and the chief engineer and second engineer kept watch, and watched with three of the A.B.s for stokers. The staff and the forward hands, with the exception of the cook, the carpenter and his mate, were on watch and watch that is, four hours on deck, and four hours below, or off duty. The carpenter was busy making a light punt, which might prove useful in the navigation of lanes and channels. 
At eleven a.m. we gave the engines a gentle trial turn astern. Everything worked well after eight months of frozen inactivity, except that the bilge pump and the discharge proved to be frozen up. They were cleared with some little difficulty. The engineer reported that to get steam he had to use one ton of coal with wood ashes and blubber. The fires, required to keep the boiler warm, consumed one and a quarter to one and a half hundred weight of coal per day. We had about fifty tons of coal remaining in the bunkers. October 21st and 22nd were days of low temperature, which caused the open leads to freeze over. The pack was working, and ever anon the roar of pressure came to our ears. We waited for the next move of the gigantic forces that arrayed against us. The 23rd brought a strong northwesterly wind, and the movement of the flows and pressure ridges became more formidable. Then, on Sunday, October 24th, there came what, for the endurance, was the beginning of the end. The position was latitude 69 degrees 11 minutes south, longitude 51 degrees 5 minutes west. We had now twenty-two and a half hours of daylight, and throughout the day we watched the threatening advance of the flows. At 6.45 p.m. the ship sustained heavy pressure in a dangerous position. The attack of the ice is illustrated roughly in the appended diagram. The shaded portions represent the pool, covered with new ice, that afforded no support to the ship, and the arrows indicate the direction of the pressure exercised by the thick flows and pressure ridges. The onslaught was all but irresistible. The endurance groaned and quivered as her starboard quarter was forced against the flow, twisting the stern post, and starting the heads and ends of planking. The ice had lateral as well as forward movement, and the ship was twisted and actually bent by the stresses. She began to leak dangerously at once. I had the pumps rigged, got up steam, and started the bilge pumps at 8 p.m. The pressure by that time had relaxed. The ship was making water rapidly aft, and the carpenter set to work to make a coffer dam astern of the engines. All hands worked, watch and watch, throughout the night, pumping ship and helping the carpenter. By morning the leak was being kept in check. The carpenter and his assistants chalked the coffer dam with straps of blankets, and nailed strips over the seams wherever possible. The main or hand pump was frozen up, and could not be used at once. After it had been knocked out, Worsley, Greenstreet and Hudson went down in the bunkers, and cleared the ice from the bilges. "'This is not a pleasant job,' wrote Worsley. "'We have to dig a hole down through the coal, "'while the beams and timbers groan and creak all around us like pistol-shots. "'The darkness is almost complete, "'and we mess about in the wet with half-frozen hands, "'and try to keep the coal from slipping back into the bilges. "'The men on deck pour buckets of boiling water from the galley down the pipe, "'as we prod and hammer from below.' and at last we get the pump clear, cover up the bilges to keep the coal out, and rush on deck, very thankful to find ourselves safe in the open air. Monday, October 25th, dawned, cloud and misty, with a minus temperature and a strong southeasterly breeze. All hands were pumping at intervals, and assisting the carpenter with the coffer dam. 
The leak was being kept under fairly easily, but the outlook was bad. Heavy pressure ridges were forming in all directions, and though the immediate pressure upon the ship was not severe, I realized that the respite would not be prolonged. The pack within our range of vision was being subjugated to enormous compression, such as might be caused by cyclonic winds, opposing ocean currents, or constriction in a channel of some description. I realized that the respite would not be prolonged. The pressure ridges, massive and threatening, testified to the overwhelming nature of the forces that were at work. Huge blocks of ice weighing many tons were lifted into the air and tossed aside as other masses rose beneath them. We were helpless, intruders in a strange world, our lives dependent upon the play of grim elementary forces that made a mockery of our puny efforts. I scarcely dared hope now that the endurance would live, and throughout that anxious day I reviewed again the plans made long before the sledging journey that we must make in the event of our having to take to the ice. We were ready, as far as forethought could make us, for every contingency. Stores, dogs, sledges, and equipment were ready to be moved from the ship at a moment's notice. The following day brought clear weather with a blue sky. The sunshine was inspiriting. The roar of pressure could be heard all around us. New ridges were rising, and I could see as the day wore on that the lines of major disturbance were drawing nearer to the ship. The endurance suffered some strains at intervals. Listening below, I could hear the cracking and groaning of her timbers, the pistol-like cracks that told of the starting of a tree-nail or plank, and the faint, indefinable whispers of our ship's distress. Overhead the sun shone serenely, Occasional fleecy clouds drifted before the southerly breeze, and the light glinted and sparkled on the million facets of the new pressure ridges. The day passed slowly. At 7 p.m. very heavy pressure developed, with twisting strains that racked the ship fore and aft. The butts of planking were opened four and five inches on the starboard side, and at the same time we could see from the bridge that the ship was bending like a bow under titanic pressure. Almost like a living creature, she resisted the forces that would crush her. But it was a one-sided battle. Millions of tons of ice pressed inexorably upon the little ship that had dared the challenge of the Antarctic. The endurance was now leaking badly, and at 9 p.m. I gave the order to lower boats, gear, provisions, and sledges to the floe, and move them to the flat ice a little way from the ship. The working of the ice closed the leak slightly at midnight, but all hands were pumping all night. A strange occurrence was the sudden appearance of eight emperor penguins from a crack a hundred yards away, at the moment when the pressure upon the ship was at its climax. They walked a little way towards us, halted, and after a few ordinary calls, proceeded to utter wild cries that sounded like a dirge for the ship. None of us had ever before heard the Empress utter any other than the most simple calls or cries, and the effect of this concerted effort was almost startling. End of chapter 4, part 1